Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I very seldom go to the movies. It's not that I'm all that holy, it's just easier to wait for them to come on on Netflix and then I can watch them with my profanity filter. By the way, I use a service called Enjoy Movies Your Way, and I highly recommend it. Anyway, when I go to the movies, one thing that really annoys me is when they say that the movie is going to start at 7 o'clock. So I go to the restroom at 6.55 because I have an old man's bladder, and then I settle in for the movie. What they don't tell you is there's probably 15 to 20 minutes of coming attractions. That is kind of where we are in the book of 1 Kings, but instead of coming attractions, it's coming destructions. If you are taking notes, they will be in the form of doubt, defeat, drought, destruction, denunciation, deployment, and defection. The situations described range from a small-scale dispute between two neighbors to a major political disaster where the people are given over to an enemy. Furthermore, most of the situations that are described here would actually occur in the years ahead, and we will read about them in the pages of 1 and 2 Kings. The dispute between Ahab and Naboth in 1 Kings 21 will have similarities to the first situation mentioned by Solomon. We will see the people defeated by an enemy in chapter 11, drought in chapter 17, famine in chapter 18, a siege in 2 Kings 6, a visit from a foreigner in chapter 10, battles in chapter 20, and finally, exile in 2 Kings chapter 17. Solomon's seven situations, in fact, point to the entire history of the peoples of Israel that are going to be recounted in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Solomon was praying about every situation his people would face. Here Solomon's prayer shifts from asking God to bless the temple to asking God to forgive the people. In it, he lists seven situations which only God's intervention would avert, either individual or national disaster. Look at verse 30 with me in our first issue, which is doubt. 
And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive. If a person sins against his neighbor and is compelled to take an oath of innocence, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar at this house, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, and acquitting the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. The first thing we're going to look at is doubt. If a man was accused of a crime, but there was no evidence against him, then only God could judge, and he is certainly able to do that. I read this week that in the town of Merced, which is named after the Spanish word for mercy, a bumbling robbery attempt was brought to a merciful end. According to authority, Stephen Stanley began breaking the glass in the jewelry department at J.C. Penney's at the Merced Mall. He was grabbed by two nearby men in the store who attempted to hold him down to prevent him from getting away with any of the merchandise. Angered at their intervention, Stanley tried to use pepper spray against his sudden captors, but instead he accidentally sprayed himself. Temporarily incapacitated by his own pepper spray, Stanley was easily subdued and eventually arrested on charges of robbery, assault, and, and uh, with a deadly weapon and drug charges. Now that story reminds me of Ecclesiastes 10.8 which says, He that digs a hole will fall into it. That assures us that justice will come to those who break God's law some sooner than expected. The first situation Solomon describes in his first petition is a familiar one. In fact, the king had dealt with this kind of situation himself, most notably in the case of the two prostitutes and the two babies back in chapter 3. Solomon now imagines a situation in which one person sins against another person and thus fails to keep the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Sadly, such a sin is all too common today, as it happens every day. But in this case, there are no other witnesses, and therefore no other human being knows the truth about what really happened. So how will justice be done? Not even Solomon, with all of his wisdom, could adjudicate everything. So when it proved impossible to judge between two neighbors, Solomon prayed that God himself would render the verdict and execute that sentence. And although the procedure for this is not fully explained, what Solomon has in mind is some sort of trial by ordeal. We read something similar in the Law of Moses which says that two parties shall come before God in Exodus 22.9, but it never actually describes how they, to, how they are to do so. Apparently, the temple priest had some means of determining who was guilty and who was innocent. Possibly, this was done with the Urim and Thummim, which were kind of like holy dice, that Israel's high priest kept in the breastplate of judgment. One practical way for us to do this is to follow Solomon's example and make God's justice a matter of prayer. We often are going to encounter conflicts when we are grieved about what people are doing 
even when it is hard to know who is really telling the truth. And since we do not have that perfect knowledge to render the perfect justice, instead of getting cynical or discouraged about all the evil in the world, we should just pray that justice will be done. We should pray that the guilty will be condemned and the righteous rewarded, if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. Rather than getting overburdened by responsibility for justice that none of us can really bear, we should call on the justice of God, who in the words of 1 Peter 1.17, judges impartially according to each one's needs. In any case, when people accused of wrongdoing would go to the temple and swear an oath to God's altar, Psalm was asking God to condemn the guilty and to reward the righteous. The judge's responsibility was to condemn the wicked and justify the righteous. But when it comes to our salvation, God justifies the ungodly on the basis of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. God has condemned all people as unrighteous. For we are told that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So that he might though show grace to all mankind and save those who will just put their trust in his son, he has provided a way of escape. But sometimes God's ways are hard for us to understand as he grows us in our faith. I like Spurgeon's narrative about the painter who was working in St. Paul's high up on a, on a platform. He was sizing up his work and its proportion, stepping backward inch by inch as he made his careful assessment. His feet, however, were now at the very edge of the platform, a fact that one of his assistants noticed with proper alarm. Yet the worker knew that if he shouted, Sir, you're in danger, the startling tendency to look back would have, made, would have meant a fatal plunge to the pavement below. Instead, he grabbed his paintbrush, dipped it in a paint pot, and flung the paint all over the picture. The painter bolted forward in rage to chew out his worker, and then he saw that the ruin of his work had been the saving of his life. That's a good picture of severity and mercy. Spurgeon then comments, Have you not found this God to act this way in your case? Can you not tell stories in which and with you where he has united judgment with kindness, distress with deliverance, chastisement with consolation, and wounding with healing? I found that helpful. Maybe one reason our spiritual growth sometimes grinds down is that we gradually can lose a heart sense of the profound length that Christ went to save us. When we were running full speed the other direction, he chased us down, subdued our rebellion, and opened our eyes to see the need of him and his all-sufficient ability to meet that need. You see, we were not drowning in the, in the need of being thrown a life preserver. No, instead we were already stone dead 
at the bottom of the ocean. But he pulled us up, breathed new life into us, and set our feet on a new path. And so now every breath we now draw is owing to his utter deliverance of us and all of our helplessness and death. Verse 33, please. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and implore your favor in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave their fathers. Our next issue is defeat. The French atheist Voltaire said, it is said that God is always on the side of the heaviest battalions. But the truth is that God is always on the side of his chosen people. Well, normally. What do I mean? Although they were usually victorious, the people of God would sometimes suffer defeat in battle. The debacle at Ai was a notable example, as was the loss they suffered at the hands of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. In both cases, the Israelites lost the battle because they had sinned against God. God had warned his people that if they do not keep his commandments, he would turn against them and allow their enemies to strike them down. According to the justice of God and the curses he pronounced in breaking his covenant, the proper punishment for national rebellion was military defeat. When the people began to sin, God punished them first in the land, as we see in the book of Judges. But when they persisted in their rebellion, he then allowed enemy nations to take them out of the land. But Solomon also believed in the loving mercy of a forgiving God. So he prayed that when the people would be defeated, God would hear their prayers at the temple, forgive their sin, and bring them back to the land that he had promised them. And Solomon's, Solomon's mention of the temple here is crucial. The reason God established the temple as a place to pray for forgiveness was that that is where the sacrifices would be made for sin. And on the basis of that atonement, the king was praying that there would be a way back home for fallen sinners, as there always is. And that is good news for us this morning. God is such a loving Father that when we finally do decide to come back after wandering far away in our sin, smelling like pig slop, He will come running to meet any prodigal son or daughter. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes looking for, to find every lost sheep that belongs in His pasture. So those times, if we ever get lost and far away, the God of mercy promises he will hear our prayer for rescue and return. Look at verse 35 with me. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and praise your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they are to walk, 
and provide rain in, on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The next issue we will deal with is drought. Only God can send the rain to replenish the land that had dried up as a result of the rebellion of his people. So military defeat was not the only punishment that God's people could undergo. Sometimes the land itself would suffer because of Israel's sin. Now Israel had the title to that land because of God's covenant with Abraham. But they could possess it and enjoy its blessings only if they continue to obey God's law. And one of the severest disciplines listed in the covenant was to have drought in the land. The Lord promised his people that he would send them rain in its season only if they honored him. And since the Israelites were an agricultural people, rain was absolutely necessary for their survival. And whenever the people did obey the Lord... They enjoyed bumper crops, and their flocks and herds were healthy and multiplied. So the purpose of the drought was to bring the people to a place of repentance, and God promised then to forgive their sins and send the rain. And maybe Solomon's prayer here was prophetic, for this is exactly what happened in the days of King Ahab, as we're going to read later in 1 Kings. The people turned away from the God of Israel at that time to worship Baal, which was the storm god of the Canaanites. And by the prayers of God's prophet Elijah, there was no rain on the earth for three long years. At the end of that time, Elijah went up to Mount Carmel to confront the prophets of Baal. Then he offered the proper sacrifice to God, which God accepted by fire. But let's bring it down to where we're living this morning. Maybe this morning there's not a drought in the nation, but maybe you're feeling dry. All of this that we're going to look at is an answer to Solomon's prayers. The king knew how certain that eventually the people would turn away from the worship of the true God. And when they did, he knew exactly what would happen. The land would be afflicted with drought. But Solomon prayed that when they repented, God would forgive their sins and then once again shower them with his blessings. This is the way for us to pray whenever we are in one of the dry times of our own spiritual life. We should repent of loving the gods of money, sex, and power, and all the other idols our age offers. And then we should pray for God to rain his blessings down on us, refreshing us with the pure water of his Holy Spirit. We but have to desire it and ask for it. Verse 37, If there is a famine in the land, if there is a plague, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if the enemy harasses them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness is there, whatever prayer or plea is offered by any person or by all the people of Israel, 
each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and give to each in accordance with all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all mankind. So they will fear you all the days that they live on the land which you have given to our fathers. Our next issue is destruction. Solomon prayed that when the people sinned and experienced pestilence, when they sinned and experienced drought, when they sinned and are smitten by their enemies, when they call upon you, forgive them, for you know the hearts of all men. And that, my friends, is a good thing to remember this morning. Only God knows the hearts of all men. Only God sees the heart that truly turns to him. That means that when I forgive people, I must forgive them absolutely unconditionally because I don't know their heart. Now, I found that to be wonderfully freeing because it means that I don't have to judge, analyze, or try to figure the situation out. Rather, I am simply called to love and forgive, confident that God in the end will deal with the heart of the matter. And if we're being honest, it's also good for me to remember that sometimes people need to forgive me for being a pretentious jerk. What's well, uh-huh? <laughs> the only amen I get. <laughs> but it seems to me that people in general, and Christian people in particular, tend to divide sin into just two categories. And they are their sins... And my sin. Now the Bible, of course, knows no such distinction. Sin is sin without any kind of partiality. Walt Whitman, one of America's greatest poets, writes in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry of his own capacity for evil. He writes, I am he who knew what it was to be evil. I too knotted the old knot of contradiction. Blabbed, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged, had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes I dared not speak. Was wayward, vain, greedy, shallow, sly, cowardly, malignant. The wolf, the snake, the hog, not wanting in me. The cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish, not wanting. Refusals, hates, postponements, meanness, laziness, none of these wanting. That, my beloved, is called honesty. My old black pastor used to say, Brother Scotty, ain't no one quite as holy as they look on Sunday morning. So that means like the nation of Israel, we too have plagues inside and out. Now Solomon's fourth petition was similar to the third. As the king anticipated further difficulties his people were likely to face as a result of their sin, he prayed for deliverance from disaster. Now Solomon began by listing a comprehensive series of natural disasters. But let me add here, we must never 
necessarily assume that every time we see one of these disasters take place somewhere in the world, that God is punishing that nation directly for their sin. Now, he may be, but not all the time. We are told in the book of Romans that because of the fall, nature itself is groaning in anticipation of the future. Look at verse 41 with me. Also regarding the foreigner who is not of your people Israel. For when he comes from a far country on account of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and act in accordance with all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. The last issue we'll look at this morning is denunciation. Solomon prayed, When people of the other nations come to the temple and turn their back upon their heathen gods, after hearing about the great things you have done for Israel, I'd like you to hear their prayers as well. Now the foreigners mentioned here were the people who would come to Israel because they had heard of the greatness of the Lord and of this temple. You see, it was the responsibility of Israel to be a light to the pagan Gentile nations and then to demonstrate to them the glory of the true and the living God. And we see Jesus righteously angry in John 2 there in the temple because of this. Because in the court of the Gentiles there, which as far as the Gentiles could go, the merchants had set up tables to exchange money and to sell animals at an exorbitant price. So as evidenced by Solomon's prayer, the court of the Gentiles should have been a place where the Gentiles could be drawn to the true and the living God. No wonder then that Jesus was so incensed that what was to be a place of outreach and evangelism was nothing more than nothing more than now just a place of crooked business practices. And one of the clearest answers to Solomon's prayer will come in 2 Kings 5 where a mighty captain in the Syrian army travels to Israel for healing. The warrior's name was Naaman and when he contracted leprosy he was desperate to find a cure. Well, finally, a little Jewish servant girl mentioned that if he went to Israel, the prophet of the Lord would surely heal him. Thus, Naaman became the answer to Solomon's prayer. A foreigner from a far country who heard the name of the Lord, traveled to Israel, received the answer to his prayers, and then gave glory to God by saying, Behold, I now know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. We should pray for the same thing today. That's what Jonathan was talking about. Namely, the salvation of the world. We should pray that people from all nations would hear about the glorious grace of God. That there is forgiveness to them through the, through the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We should pray that they would turn to God in prayer, asking Him for the free gift of eternal life. We pray that for the sake of God's own glory, that God would answer their prayers and that they in turn would give praise to God for his saving grace. 
And when we pray for the nations, we are standing on God's ancient promise that His grace is for the entire world. And at the same time, we are aiming at the highest goal in the universe, which is the glory of God. Let us never forget that God blesses us to be a blessing, not that we might hoard the blessing and boast. We are now called to be salt and light. But when we start turning inward, when we start losing our vision for reaching the lost and bringing the lost into a saving knowledge of Christ, that is a very dangerous place for us to be. What I mean is, the church or the individual life that turns inward will soon grow frustrated. And likewise, a person who only looks inward will soon grow discontented. We must commit ourselves before the Lord to reaching out to the world continually. That when people see us, they will sense a loving community whose desire is to lead them into a fuller knowledge of God through Christ. So as we finish up today, 1 Kings 8 holds some important lessons for us. As God's purpose for the world has been made clear, and but that foreshadowed the experience there of the people of Israel. But we can see now something of what that blessing really means. It is bigger, better, and more beautiful than the unreliable prosperity, short-lived health, and fleeting happiness that many of us seek. We would be wise to see how little those things can actually give us, and how transitory they are, and the downside that each certainly brings. The word that sums up God's purpose for the world he has made, and for the people he has created, is the word blessing. Now, few people would use the word blessing to sum up the state of the world today. Indeed, few would choose to use that word to sum up their individual lives. Now, of course, some of us are very aware that we have been very fortunate in life. We have been spared much of the suffering that others endure, and we have all enjoyed above-average prosperity, health, and happiness. We might, just for those reasons, say that we have been blessed. That is true, but it's not the whole truth. You see, those blessings are fragile, unreliable, and temporary. For all the, the privileges some of us may enjoy, none of us can escape frustration, conflict, sadness, sickness, pain, fear, anxiety, and finally death. That teaches me that the good things in this life are only fleeting. None of it lasts. In the end, death destroys them all. This is not our best life now. You may be thinking, Pastor Bill, you should never take up motivational speaking. <laughs> Regardless of that, I am telling us the truth according to the scripture. The Bible teaches us that this situation has been brought about by the human defiance of God Almighty. Our disobedience has brought about the opposite of blessing. 
Genesis 3 tells that story. Cursed is now the terrible word that accurately sums up the state of this entire world. And much of our life experience corresponds to that dreadful word. Reminding us that we all live with the consequences of humanity's rejection against God. The heart of the Bible, though, in its astonishing message, is that God has promised that cursed will not be the last word. He is committed to his purpose of blessing. Now this was made clear in the promise that God gave to Abraham when he said this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 8 right here we have come to the high point of that story. Here we see God's people experiencing wonderful blessings. However, it is obvious that this is not the end of the Bible story. And that is because, as I have said almost every Sunday, in due course, the wonders of 1 Kings 8 don't last. The experiences of 1 Kings chapter 8 were not the final and complete fulfillment of God's purpose. They were only a shadow of of the good things to come. We'll come back next week for the continuance of this. Let us pray. Father, I see in my own life situations where I need you to judge between me and somebody else. Help me to be quick to forgive during those times. Your proverb says it's the glory of a person to overlook an offense. And sometimes, Lord, there's drought in my life. I feel like that my prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling. During those times, I pray that I would ask for the water of life. You promised that out of our bellies would flow streams of living water. And finally, Lord, sometimes disastrous things happen. And when those things happen, and they happen to all of us, let me cling to you as the anchor of my soul, for I know you are faithful. We ask in your name, amen.